UX Podcast Episode 293. So, hello everybody and welcome to UX Podcast coming to you from Stockholm, Sweden. We are your hosts, Pat Axbom. And James Roy Lawson. Balancing business, technology, people, and society with listeners all over the world. And joining us today is Katie Swindler. And Katie is a user experience strategist, originally educated as a theater director. And I had to look that up, of course. And a theater director is responsible for ensuring the quality and completeness of theater production and for leading the members of the creative team into realizing realizing their artistic artistic vision for it. So I love how people within the design profession often have this deep well of other perspectives to draw from. So Katie published the book, um, Life and Deaf Design, What Life-Saving Technology Can Teach Everyday Designers with Rosenfeld Media. Um, oh, it was um, earlier this year, wasn't it? And, mm, and um, it's another pandemic product, um, but this time also very aligned with the emotional distress that many of us have experienced over the past two years. The book focuses on designing for people under significant stress, which, as we um, shall see, can happen in many different circumstances. I feel like kind of a method actor today because I've been messaging James all day uh, telling him how stressed I am. Uh, and so between meetings and, and holding workshops and stuff. And so I'm ending the day with interviewing a person who can teach me about how to design for stressful situations. Uh, and I've been thinking all day about how it's affected my driving and my decision making and my intuition. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about who, who is the book for and what types of life and death situations are we talking about? Sure. So. Uh, the subtitle of the book I chose was uh, What Life-Saving Technology Can Teach Everyday Designers uh, because, you know, as, as you mentioned, pretty much any human user that you're designing for might be stressed, right? Uh, so I look in the book at a lot of high stakes, high stress industries that study the intersection between stress and design, uh, but... I, one of the things when I was researching that I found was the, the things that they discover in those research for those high stakes industries, they're applicable across all industries. So things that, you know, I was I was reading and learning about designing for aviation and healthcare and the military, I could see broader implications for applying those to, you know, other sorts of high stress, high stakes jobs, you know, things like that might not be life and death, like, you know, like a day trader or a customer service rep, but it's still a very high stress job or, you know, uh, designing for uh, stressful moments for a consumer. Like maybe you have a whole app and you have one feature that's meant to be used like after a car crash, right, to order a tow truck or something. Um, or, you know, maybe your product shouldn't really be stressful at all, but people, like you said, they're having a hard day. Uh, you know, they're in the midst of a pandemic or, you know, they've read the news headlines in any of the last three years. So, you know, like that, like that, yeah. They're coming in a stressed out <laughs> state of mind to yeah. to the to the product. And and all of that makes um, it more difficult for them to use your product. And so. I think it's essential for any designer of any product that's used by humans 
um, to understand the human stress response and, and the sort of impacts it has on behavior and understanding and, and people's ability to use and learn uh, the products because it, you know, it, it, it can affect the design choices that we make. Hmm. And I do appreciate how you, you start us off with thinking about all these high stress situations and these professions. And then you, as you read along, you start to realize, well, this, this is everyday life. Yes. <laughs> it applies to basically everyone. So it's really about helping people solve problems. Yeah. And you don't know if people are in a stressful situation. Uh, I mean, you have several examples, and you can mention the car crash. Now, I was almost in a car crash the other day. And that, of course, it wasn't about me calling afterwards because I didn't have, it wasn't that bad. But everything after that, no matter what I was doing, was affected by that, of course, experience. So you don't know where people are coming from, which means that it really applies to all the designs you're making. That's exactly right. And, you mm. know, I, I use this information as a designer, obviously, but, you know, I also use it as a mom or as a manager or as, you know, a, a neighbor trying to help, you know, get people in my neighborhood to work together. You know, like, the, it, like you use the, once you know these fundamentals about the stress response and how it affects human behavior you you know I, I, at least i find myself using it all of the time to, to to help you know just make my life better and to manage my own stress because this is you know mm. it's been a very stressful uh period in all of our lives and uh, it was a really unique experience writing a book about stress during the pandemic i hadn't intended to do that i actually signed my contract the January, January, 2020. So, you know, like, it, oh, it, like, really? Yeah. And so I had, I had signed to write this book. It was just a, a topic of interest to me. And then like I was, I signed the contract January, 2020, and I was supposed to start writing on March 15th, 2020. That was, <laughs> oh, the, oh, right. yeah, that, oh, that wow. was the day I learned that my daughter's school was going to be closed supposedly for two weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But I, I mean, that, that was supposed to be the first day I was sitting down to write this book. Um, mm. So I, I, it, one thing that I learned in my research is our memories and the way that we form memories is affected by stress. And uh, even though we learn and re and retain a lot about sort of the things that are, are you know we perceive as dangerous, like those 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 markers get embedded very deeply. But the way that we feel and the way that our brain you know, the way our mind works in those moments is actually really hard to recall after the fact. Um, you know, it's, it's also really hard for us to predict how we will behave in a stressful situation. You know, there's studies that say, you know, um, oh, you know, women, what would you do if you were in an interview and a, a man makes a pass at you? And they'd say, oh, I would slap him in the face or I would walk out or I would do this or I'd do that. But when you actually look at people's behavior in those moments, oftentimes, they react entirely differently. You know, yeah. uh, the most common thing is they just get through it. They, you know, they, they just, they are quiet and they get out of the situation mm -hmm. as, as quickly as possible. It's just really hard for humans to predict our own behavior when we are in a state of stress different than now. So, and, and to remember what it was like after the fact, you know? Right. And so uh, writing the book while I was in this heightened state of mind and, and going through this research and relating it to to my time in that moment, um, it I think it really helped unlock as much as I could get out of that research, you know, um, kind of it, it experiencing it personally in that moment. So, 
even though it was a very difficult time to do something like write a book, because I'm not Shakespeare and this isn't King Lear, you know, like, <laughs> which he wrote uh, during the, the, the a pandemic lockdown. Um, like it was, you know, and in some ways it, it probably, this book is as best as it could be, be because of the exposure that I had to, to those yeah. heightened stress states while I was going through the research process. Let's, let's, let's walk through, I mean, the steps within the stress response, because I think that being able to refer to those steps will help us in, in, in conversations about the different pieces of the puzzle, because there are different ways that people, of course, can be stressed and for how, 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 for long, how long that impacts how they feel, how it impacts their behavior, and in what situations that can appear. And I like this, this startle, just the thing of being startled is that you realize that, well, people can be startled in so many different ways. Yes, exactly. I, I break down the stress response into five states. So the first, of course, being the startle response, as you mentioned, um, and that's a very um, instantaneous, you know, we're talking milliseconds um, uh, reaction to an unexpected possible threat. Um, uh, from the startle response, there are some things that happen. First, we have what I call the intuitive assessment. That is, you know, yes, we see something flying towards our face, but is that actually a danger or not? You know, um, we jerk out of the way. That's the startle response. But then when we when our body is deciding, do we go into fight or flight or not? Um, that's the intuitive assessment, and it's just it's it's uh, all based on categorization and just matching to things that we you know are the our our lived experiences. So that intuitive assessment is step two. Three is if um, you know sometimes the this the response stops there. The intuitive assessment says, oh, that's not a real danger. Don't worry about it. But oh, if yeah. it says it is a real danger, then you go on to step three, which is fight, flight, or freeze. Mm. Um, that, I think, is what most people are most familiar with in terms of a stress response. That's when the you know cortisol gets dumped, the adrenaline gets dumped, um, and you can it, you know quickly get to sort of panicked style uh, behaviors. Um, though it doesn't always go to that extreme, right? Like if people can just get you know, feisty, <laughs> right? Like, or people often are just, you know, flight response, you know, especially like on a website, flight response can just be Xing out like, ooh, this website seems dangerous. Ooh, I don't wanna be here. I think I'm gonna get, you know, hacked, right? So, or I'm gonna get a virus, yeah. right? Like they just X out. So um, fight, flight, or freeze. Uh, freeze being like, I'm, I can get to take no action. You know, like I can't make a decision. I'm overwhelmed by, you know, mm. decision paralysis, right? Like that's sort of the lower level version of the freeze response. Um, so uh, the, the way we get past the fight, flight, or freeze response is when our prefrontal cortex, our logic and reason kick in. And that, you know, is then we get this reasoned reaction, which is step four, where we say, oh, you know, I can deal with this, you know, mm -hmm. using these, these tools that I have as a human, <laughs> you know, like, mm -hmm. and so, uh, it, you know, that's, that's, that's often, that's, that I think the most activity within a digital space happens actually with that reasoned reaction. We are helping people not panic, not live in step three, but actually get to step four, take action, um, solve a problem, call the tow truck, get an Uber. You know what I mean? Mm. Like that, that's step four. And that's actually when a big flurry of, of activity is happening in, in the digital space. And then also in step five, um, that, that recovery phase where, you know, the moment of crisis has passed, but, you know, there is still things that you need to do. And there are things that designers can do to sort of help 
um, uh, speed that recovery process. Uh, Barry, you were saying, you know, you were in a near car crash and that affected your behavior for a long time afterwards. So there's, Mm. you know, we get adrenaline and cortisol I mean, we call it a, a you know a shot of adrenaline, and and that is dumped in milliseconds into our bloodstream. But just like if we've taken a shot of alcohol, it's actually our liver and kidneys that have to filter out those neurochemicals. So it's a much longer process um, that that it takes in order to get that out. And our behavior and our thought processes are affected during that entire recovery period. It's anywhere from like 20 minutes. And I mean, it can be hours, I mean, days if you're in like a, you know, like a a dangerous wartime situation, right? Like where you're in this like constant danger. Usually if we're talking about an acute, you know, event that happens and ends, um, it's usually like about two hours afterwards where the cortisol gets completely out of your system. The adrenaline gets out a little bit faster and then the cortisol follows a couple hours Mm -hmm. after, so. I realize it's helping me to understand my own behavior, just like you were saying before. It's helping me to understand. Well, did, I probably did that because this was happening within, within my body. It's so much, it's so valuable to actually understand that process. But of course, then also as a designer, I was as you were speaking, I was thinking even of micro interactions. Every design is about people getting stressed about not knowing how. Do, what do I do now? What will happen? So there's this tiny stress that goes on, and then you find it, and then you get this. Uh, uh, information telling you that you did the right thing or you, you ended up in the right place and you relax and that's the recovery phase. It was like, I was thinking you can bring it big or small. And if you have all those small, tiny micro interactions and a lot of them are getting you stressed, I mean, I, I guess that just adds and adds and adds until you get really aggressive and angry. Yes, exactly. And, mm-hmm. and you know, I, I think people often, uh, you know, you're talking about micro interactions, mm-hmm. like the, the, fight or flight response happens all of the time and it's very intuition based you know we talk all the time about intuitive design but we don't often talk a lot as designers about intuition right like and and developing intuition and what makes you know people's spidey sense tingle right um but but you know um people develop intuition around how websites should work and when your website violates those expectations if um, the branding doesn't look quite right or if the you know the the accordions don't open and close or you know they click on a button expecting to go one place and they get taken to a completely different website right like when those expectations are violated that triggers our intuitive sense of danger. Like we are programmed as humans and, you know, the the ones who survived millions of years of evolution, right, to get where we are because we pay attention to things and we treat things that are unexpected as dangerous. And so, you know, by by understanding that that, you know, violating these expectations are, is really going to trigger people's stress responses. I think it helps us make better choices as designers um, and and helps us understand, it, you know, when people are going to leave, when people are going to get angry, right? Like, oh, this didn't work how I expected, and now I'm mad about it. Um, or, it, you know, they, they just, you know, more often than not, they just, they just get out that they, you're triggering that flight response. And, and as you said, like it's at, at different levels, you know, they're not in a panic because, you know, the branding is off on your <laughs> payments page, you know, they're not like fleeing yeah. the room or throwing their computer across, <laughs> but, but they are, you know, it, it, 
it, it's scale the the response is the same it's just scaled to the situation because at the end of the day we're fairly simple <laughs> simple creatures driven driven by the same set of neurochemicals hmm. this is this is really interesting though about the 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 expectations um because i mean you, you see how i mean it's when you've got more general um products or to more general audience then the my experience would say that the the le- no, the evenness of their expectations or, or existing knowledge about interfaces or what's possible really does vary. Um, and then when you work with like an enterprise product and you're dealing with an interface that someone's going to be using for like 40 hours a week, their their ex- expertise in the interface or related interfaces becomes so you know exact. And if you vary from what's an industry standard maybe for that branch, um, you can end up causing all kinds of problems. Um, and that, so that's that's a that's a fascinating thing to think about. Like, how do you assess and understand people's intuition or uh, existing knowledge about things? Yeah, the interesting thing is in this space, you know, is actually the tactics that you take to design for consumers in stressful situations versus experts in stressful situations they have trained for is very different. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, there, I you know, I actually just taught a workshop a few weeks ago and like the whole first half was dedicated to designing for stressed out consumers and the second half was about designing for experts in high stress situations um, because the thing that differentiates the the novice from the expert is experience and it is experience and repetition and training that develops somebody's intuition and so when somebody when somebody has developed that reliable intuition, they have moved a lot of the processes that they are doing from um, a f- from something they have to think about, and it, and it takes a lot of time to something that's automatic, right? Um, uh, you know that they're and and they can actually do they they can't do the hardest parts of their job, the parts that they really need their expertise for, if they are thinking about all of the things that they have made automatic. The reason they're able to get to the depth of, of expertise in their particular area is because they've automated a lot of the, the pre-steps before it. So they can put their cognitive effort, their, you know, their brain power towards that most difficult end of the scale. And, and that's what separates them from, from novices in the space. And if you interrupt that first part, the part that they have automated, that is a really terrible thing. And you, you're going to undercut the the expert right like you're, you're taking away what makes them the expert by making them think about the part of it that they have gotten automated through repetition mm-hmm. and practice like if mm-hmm. you there, there's great studies around um you know taking novice golfers and expert golfers and um if you give them um you know you give them a you know try to try to have them make their putt shot and you give each uh group um, uh, a task like, oh, you have to make it timed, right? Like you have to do it fast. Um, the novices get worse when they have to do it fast. The experts get better when they have to do it fast because they are falling back on training and expert and, and intuition and, mm. and, and it just goes. Same with uh, if you try to have them do like math while they're taking it, right? The, the, they, or versus thinking really hard about their shot. Um, if you actually make an expert think really hard about their shot, they get worse, 
whereas the novices get better. Um, so, uh, and then if you distract them, <laughs> you know, we call it sometimes, have you guys heard, you heard the phrase, get out of your head? Like the actors use it all yeah. the time. Like, and yeah. I think sports yeah. people mm. use it, you know, you got to get out of your head because you, you know, and so if as designers, if we are working on a tool that is meant for a professional to use, like, we need to be thinking about how do we design that tool in a way that helps them, you know, get out of their head that that they are not having to think about the nitty gritty, they are focused on the thought work on the hard work, on the problem solving that they need to be paying attention to. Um, and yeah, I, I think that, you know, when we think about, you know, things that are kind of cornerstones of our industry, things like test and learn, right? Like we have to be really thoughtful about test and learn when, especially when we're going to expert users, because, um, you know, I, I somebody was telling me, uh, from, you know, a, a colleague at Allstate, they, they were watching some of the, um, uh, customer service representatives in our company use the, the, their interface, like their software, their customer service software. And they noticed that as somebody is going through all of these screens, they're actually moving their mouse to where the next button they're going to need to click will be before mm -hmm. the screen yeah. has even loaded, right? Like it's all right. muscle memory. And yeah. so mm -hmm. if you, if you are trying to improve that flow, <laughs> And you switch what that button does, you know, you switch the placement of the button or you switch mm. around what the buttons do, you, mm. it's going to be very difficult to be, you know, to circumvent those habits. And we know that even if the first couple of times they use it and they're thinking really hard about it and they can do it, they're going to constantly fall back. As soon as they start to gain competency in the new area, they're going to they're gonna go into you know unconscious competence <laughs> type things and they're gonna and they're gonna um they're gonna fall back on old habits right so it's very difficult to make small changes within a familiar environment that they have had a lot of practice in it's almost better when redesigning things to just do a hugely fresh redesign where all you're dealing with is somebody learning the learning the new learning curve mm -hmm. and not a learning curve plus fighting remaking old habits right so i love that perspective because that's i mean that's completely opposite to what you hear other people yes. say is that you 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 design incrementally and improve incrementally uh, yeah it, and it's it's because so much of of the rules of our trade are focused on designing for consumer uh, audiences, mm. right? Like, cause mm. that's where a lot of the money is, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Mm. Or, or mm. at least that's the stuff that is more shared in our industry. Usually if you're, yeah. if you're designing something for a professional audience, there's a lot of, you know, intellectual property and protection and in like NDAs. And like, we don't talk about that stuff because it's a secret sauce for the, for the company, right? Mm. And so we're not as open as, as opposed to designers who design for a consumer space, like, yeah, you can, you know, go click to it and you can look at it and it's all public. And, you know, uh, it's very easy for designers to build their portfolios if they work primarily on the consumer side. And it can be really difficult for designers who are designing primarily on the professional side because a lot of that stuff is secret, but it also affects you know, the sort of standards uh, that we have and best practices that are shared throughout our industry, not as many of those best practices are shared 
um, amongst designers for professional um, uh, software, uh, just because you know it, they're not allowed to be as as open about it. This is this starts me often thinking about how you know we're talking about um, intuition and and familiarity, so repeat repetition and so on. You know, prolonged practice makes you an expert, and you know if you're a design expert. And, you know, when you've been working in all these different environments and different, you know, projects and oh, design situations of the years, I mean, can't you ever trust your intuition as a designer? In in sense that, you know, I'm thinking about, I think in the book you have the example of the fireman. It was a fireman in a building with a cellar they didn't know about. Um, yeah. Um, that, was, that was a wonderful story where the, the fireman trusted his intuition and, and saved his crew because there was things that were fishy about this fire he was dealing with without going into all the details but he, there were unknowns that he didn't know about but his spider sense basically picked up on these uh, things and co- yeah yeah he thought he had ESP extrasensory perception like he <laughs> thought he had a, a, a supernatural power because mm. he was in the situation where the fire seemed very dangerous and he couldn't put his thumb on what it was, but he trusted his gut and his, you know, and, and got his crew out. But then when the, when Gary Klein, the, the researcher really pressed him to say like, okay, well tell me more about the situation. He was like, yeah, the fire was too quiet and the fire was hotter than it should have been. And the fire wasn't reacting to the spray of our water in the way that it should have. And, and Carrie's like, okay, so you, you, it was actually your experience. Like these weren't matching your expectations, right? We were talking Mm. about like, it doesn't match. And so you have a Mm. fight flight response, right? Like you're like, I got to get out of here. This, this isn't meeting my expectations and therefore Mm. it's dangerous, right? Like, like Mm. sometimes that is not a great thing that humans have that, that things that aren't as expected, we perceive as dangerous. I think a lot of our Mm. social problems are kind of rooted Mm. in that, but in the, but in the sort of survival sense, like it is essentially what has allowed us to survive as a species. So, you know, it, it does have good implications in, in situations like that fire for that fireman. It was, it's interesting because, you know, the fireman was kind of like, as he went through this, he was both Klein, Klein in his book talks about how he was both proud that it was actually his experience that, that saved his crew. But he also was like, um, almost like worried because now he's like, wow, I thought I had this superpower and, and it would protect me. And now mm. I realize I'm just like everyone else, yeah. <laughs> you know? So it's, it, but it, he it, does have a superpower. He yeah, does. Superpower is experience. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, that's just fascinating that, you know, when you've got that, um, I suppose that narrow specialism because mm. you know, he was a fireman and he worked on dealing with fires. So it allows them to, to, to get that kind of, Oh, tunnel not tunnel vision as such but you, you kind of really narrowed the, the the world down so that these are the things mm. i deal with i can see what's off track and you know my responses can build up from that whereas going back to what i was saying about us as, as digital designers our world's massive and complex and we're just constantly dealing with new problems different problems so so even though we're we're um specialist designers with huge amounts of experience I, I just wonder whether we can actually ever really trust our intuition. Yes. Given the, given the broad scope of what we work with. It's a really good question to ask. And as designers, we need to constantly be checking our bias. But the good news is um, 
Klein, the the researcher, I was you know who who has that awesome psychic fireman story, um, and Gary Kahneman, who um, is you know a Nobel Prize winning economist who spent his career studying bias, they actually collaborated on a paper um, that looked at um, when can um, expert bias be trusted. Um, and so they have two very um, different takes on intuition and bias, you know, like Kahneman calls it bias and Klein calls it intuition. And you can kind of guess what which bias they have towards towards this, you know, automated subconscious process that we have, you know, just based on the names that they call it, but it's the same. It's just, you know, two, two names for, for the same thing. And so, you know, they are, um, they're creating uh, they've created these rules that say, okay, you can you can trust and rely on expert intuition when two things are true, and both have to be true: that there are rules that can be learned, and that there is that somebody has um, enough um, has a, has enough um, time and practice to to learn the rules. Now, these rule sets can be extremely complicated, um, but there are rules, right? The reason the fireman could um, could build expert intuition is because he's learning through, you know, experience the laws of thermodynamics, right? Fire behaves a certain way because of the laws of thermodynamics. There are really, there are a ton of rules that, that guide it, and it's fairly finite, number of rules. It is complex. Don't get me wrong. Right. Like, like, like it, it really is complex, but it is, it is predictable enough that it can be learned through study, a lot of study, but through study. Mm. Um, the, I would say that the rules of design, especially when it comes to things like how human attention works, right? Like where is an eye drawn on a page? Right. Like those are rules that we can learn. Um, we also are relying on a set of established um, normative uh, patterns. Right. Things like an accordion. Right. It, it opens and closes. It works just like a drawer would in real life. Like we're, we're leaning on metaphors that, you know, it, it should work like a drawer in that it opens and closes and reveals something. It's the same thing in the drawer every time, just like a physical drawer in your, you know, I don't know about you guys, but I don't have any magical drawers in my house where I put something in it, I close it and I open it back up and it's, and it's something different. My sock drawer. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. You got me. You got me. We've got some, we've got some hidden drawers. <laughs> But we've got, got drawers hidden in our skirting boards in the kitchen. They're fantastic. But, but you know, like we are, we have a we have a set of fairly standard, you know, an X in the corner of the page, right? And that is always going to to close whatever you're doing, or it should always close. Otherwise, you're violating those ex violating those expectations. Yeah. And as a community, we are creating and and we're adding to it, right? Like the infamous hamburger menu, those like three horizontal lines that you know Facebook started using uh, to indicate a menu uh, that people you know think look like a hamburger. Um, you know that we now people have seen that enough and we as a community have used that in a standard way enough that that has become an intuitively recognized icon it was not for years right facebook put it out there so it got lots of exposure but it took a long time for it to really proliferate into the the sort of intuitive use but so but we can make new intuitive 
um, uh, you know, UIs, UI elements, new, new, new intuitive components through, through the proliferation throughout our, our community, which I think is really interesting. So I would say that uh, to a certain extent, yes, we as designers, there are rules of design and, and, and there's rules of human attention and there are rules that we can learn in order to develop good intuition about, um, oh, I, I'm going to look at this design and I'm going and I can and I can predict to a relative certainty that that is going to cause a lot of problems for a lot of people. Right. Like we've all had that experience like, oh, man, nobody's going to be able to find that. And, you know, then if you put it up, you you know, like nine times out of ten, you're right. Now, we're not always right when we try to predict future human behavior. That is actually one of the areas that both Kahneman and Klein uh, agree is is really difficult to do to to predict future human behavior um, it, it because uh, you know things like it's really difficult to try to predict whether a um, criminal will reoffend right because there's so many contributing factors to that around like if that person you know like why that person would reoffend is it personal is it environment it's just so complex things like trying to predict the stock market and and try to outdo what you know just kind of like the base <laughs> of of the stock market you can you know like it, it's really difficult to 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 predict that because it's such a complex uh, set of rules and and so much um, really complex human behavior so if you're just trying to predict, you know, one step out or two steps out, you know, you, you can probably learn to relative certainty what the options are and, and help somebody and, and be able to, to develop good intuition about where those are going. Um, but when you're trying to predict something like how well will a student do in college, you know, three years from now, like it, it the, you're getting outside of the realm of which, you know, the system is predictable enough to be learnable so mm. I, I think you've done this beautiful job of explaining how, how different it can be for different people because the, you have these people with the expertise and then you have the people with the serious familiarity and I have just have to say this I had this aha moment when I was reading the book because especially when you're thinking about the types of effects of stress uh, with tunnel vision with, with your body shaking uh, difficulty reading and focusing, uh, getting information overload. Uh, you have people who live with that constantly. Uh, and so it overlaps perfectly with how we do accessibility. Uh, so if you, if, you, if you follow the advice in your book, I think you will, you will support the needs of so many more people than just the people who are under stress, but actually the people who are living with these, under these conditions and have these difficulties every day. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I think that in general, accessible design and inclusive design, um, you know, tends to benefit everyone. Because even people who aren't stressed, if you mm. are simplifying your design enough so that it can be used by a stressed person, then it's simpler for mm. everyone to use. You know, so much of accessible design is like that. You know, things like closed caption, you know, like it was originally created for the hearing impaired, but it's so useful for, you know, everybody, you know, like mm. people who are in loud environments or, 
you know, <laughs> I was in the car the other day and my daughter was watching her iPad and I was like, can you just turn it off? Like, I don't want to hear it. <laughs> and then she could put on the closed mm-hmm. caption and still, you know, still enjoy her show, even though her mom didn't want to hear the, the noise in the car, right? Curb cuts in sidewalks, you know, like these are things that were created for people in wheelchairs and with mobility issues, but it helps parents with strollers. It helps people who have a cart for their groceries. Like, you know, it helps everybody. Um, and, and so often when we create designs that are, are meant to, to help people in extremes, um, we end up helping everybody. Um, and I, I think that's just, you know, good accessible design. That's so beautiful to end on. Hmm. Thank you, Katie. Thank you, Katie. So, at the very beginning of of Katie's book, um, and we touched on aspects of this during the interview, but the the three, these three, um, I suppose, types or or, um, situations where where products and stress um, appear or happen. One of them is, is products that are used in notoriously high-stress situations or by people who have stressful jobs. The examples there are day trader, traders or some people doing certain types of customer service. Pilots, maybe. Yeah, I guess, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's an acknowledged high-stressful job, um, answering you know, major service calls, that kind of thing. I mean, clearly, if you do design work on those products, you you're you're aware of the task of dealing and designing a product to be used in those situations your your research and so mm. on will clearly show these people are they're experts in it so maybe they're not in in heightened stress in the same way some other people will be with unexpected stress but anyway these these flags to tell you as a designer you're going to have to work with that um but then we have the the products that um are intended to be used in moments of high stress so, so you're, you're actively designing a product to be used by someone who isn't normally stressed, but that situation is stressful. And the example is like the one you gave with the, the or we talked about with the car crash or car incidents. You have, you know, you've just had an incident. You need to report it to you a. You need to report it, right? Report so, it, or you need to get yeah. help from a, um, you know, uh, repair service or pickup truck or whatever it is. Yeah, just finding that number because I've been in situations where I've just had to call someone, and finding the number is the hardest part. Yeah, it used to be like I remember you used to have stickers on car windows that you used to have the, exactly, you know, emergency yeah. numbers and so on. But yeah, but mm-hmm. so there again, you're a designer. Mm-hmm. You, when you get into that design job, you you were aware of a scenario. You know, the scenarios, situations, are going to be stressful. And you, you know, that's going to be an input into your design work. Then the third group or type of product is all of our products. Yeah. The ones that, you know, we don't, we don't think of them as, as products um, that will be stressful to use. They aren't fundamentally stressful products themselves, but nevertheless are being used by people while they are in a heightened state of stress. And, you know, they... I mean, I know what Joe asked. You know, we're talking about accessibility. We often use the example of of maybe um, a parent with carrying a a, a a baby or a toddler in one arm, being a one armed user, you know, temporary um, disability. Hmm. Um, but uh, if you're a parent and maybe you you have to do something using an app on your mobile phone while you're carrying a screaming baby, that's stressful. Exactly. So, so you, you know, as a designer, mm. you you maybe don't uh, initially, th- you know, if you're stress testing, literally stress testing your products, you mm. maybe wouldn't necessarily think about how your product might be used in a stressful situation because there are just so many situations where it could be stressful, and you happen to be 
involved in that. And that that is so super interesting to me because actually uh, we had a conversation with Katie uh, after the interview as well, as we sometimes do in these live interview situations. We were talking about so in order to make if if we are aware that people can be stressed, we need to actually test that. But it would be unethical to actually bring someone in and make them stressed during usability testing. Yeah, uh, which makes it really hard to ensure that your your product is working the way you want, unless you can actually get some of your colleagues to to be the stressed people, and you're 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 you have that consent situation. But it also made me think that uh, within accessibility, we often talk about. Well, if we all, always bring in and make sure to focus on people with accessibility challenges, then we will always cover in the widest possible, broadest base of users. Mm. Which means that we should be bringing in people who are especially sensitive to distraction, to tonality, to language, and make sure that these people are the ones we're bringing in because they can help us cover so many more issues that we perhaps couldn't anticipate. Mm. And, and you brought up um, like pilots as a as a like uh, recognized high stress. Um, mm. job um, then in, in when designing in that industry then normally you would have simulations there would be you know right. software would be tested mm. in a in a more safe environment mm. um, that possibly also simulates the stress because in some of these you know, flight simulators are really quite you know believable um, but that isn't always the case for many other situations um, I mean I, I'm, I actually don't know when you're doing changes to like um, I guess you do all, you test all software, don't you? But how you simulate the stress? So day traders, for example. I mean, how do you really simulate the 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 stress of that job in a, a test environment? Um, yeah. I mean, it's um, yeah, it's it's a real challenge getting people to to come and be stressed. And Katie in the um, um, interview interview points out about how how bad we are at um, like predicting the future or how bad we are at kind of simulating some of these things ourselves. So if you're know, like talking back about things, so if you brought in someone who doesn't normally stress mm. and you're interviewing them, they might well not give you, like the fireman, they had to dig there in a different way to get out the, the expert skill that made him understand what was fishy about the fire. But you still maybe have problems getting them to, to um, reveal all about how they would um, behave in a stressful situation. You, you don't know. I think there's there's this yeah. Swedish movie that also was re- remade into an English movie where there's this father and this family on a ski trip and there's an avalanche and the father runs away from his family and, and that's like the sort of plot point for the movie. Yeah. How could he do that? Uh, he didn't know what he would do in that situation, of course. <laughs> well, and, uh, yeah, and, and, and that would be, a, a, I suppose, a perfectly biological correct response for the situation right. in, in a yeah. way, as in he, fl- he fled. Mm. I mean, you might argue that another correct response would be to protect your clan <laughs> your flock <laughs> exactly. uh, yeah no it's it, stress mm. is stress is difficult and stress is mm. complicated um and that yeah I, I i don't i mean the book has a lot of good tips and answers about what you can do um yeah. but my my own reflections after talking to katie and reading the book is that you know i i don't think i'd really given um stressed users enough thought and place in my design work because mm. a lot of the time i mean yeah whenever i'm working with um expert interfaces then i i've been very aware of it exactly like i said you know, when the, when you know that you're you very much know that your user base is that person doing that job customer service yeah. or whatever it is but in the other times when you're doing stuff e-commerce or whatever um general products um then 
no, I don't think I really consider it in the same way. No, I agree, and that was a huge aha moment for me reading the book and talking to Katie. You know, uh, it's really, really useful, and I think it, this is one of those books that I'm going to be recommending to all designers. So what show should people be listening to next, James? Well, I think one that dovetails nicely into life and death design um, is Design for Safety uh, with um, um, Eva uh, Pentimoog. Yes. We talked to back in episode 270. Mm. Within that episode, we're talking more about um, interpersonal safety. So, so um, your safety as a, as a, as a human um, rather than with life and death design, we're talking about well, ma- mainly stress. Yeah. Good compliments. Very good. Uh, also one of those <laughs> I, really, I recommend a lot for people to listen to. Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side. muffins in an oven and the first muffin turns to the second muffin and says man it's hot in here and the second muffin looks at the first muffin and says ah a talking muffin